Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Wolford, and this is Trium Connects. I sometimes call this book my sort of anti-populist manifesto. We should give every adult an allowance when they're, let's call it 18, uh, let's, for the sake of argument, call it £30,000 or $50,000, and that that allowance could be used throughout your life to reskill and retool. But the things that automation will replace are the really tedious and repetitive bits of work. And what will remain are the bits of work that require human creativity, human interaction, compassion, empathy. And I'd like to think that automation will actually make work more gratifying over time as we leave the boring bits to the robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of Trium Connects. In September of this year, we'll be marking the 20th anniversary of the founding of the Trium Executive MBA program. The belief that lies at the very foundation of the program, from the very start to today, is this simple idea that in order to be a global business leader, one has to understand the social and political environment in which your operations happen. If you want to be a global leader, if you want to be effective at business, if you want to be successful in what you do, you have to understand the fact, and it is a fact, that none of us operate independently. We are all tied by deep networks, deep networks to our community, deep networks to our family, deep networks to our society, deep networks to our state, deep networks to our global community, all these things need to be taken into account to define success, let alone achieve it. One of the world's most profound and humane thinkers in this space is my guest today. Manoush Shafiq is the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science. But before I bring you that conversation, I want to give you just an idea of the sheer magnitude of the scope of what Manoush has accomplished in her life. I must say she's One of these people that you meet that make you question, my goodness, what have I been doing with my own time? She got her BSc in economics from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, her MSc at the LSE, and she completed her doctoral work at St. Anthony's College at the University of Oxford. Her research focused on the determinants of investment and the environment and economic growth and the economies of the Middle East and North Africa, taking into account trade and migration. She taught at Georgetown University and at Wharton. In addition, during her 15 years at the World Bank, she worked on its first ever World Development Report on the Environment. She designed reform programs for transition countries in Eastern Europe and developed proposals for economic integration in support of the Oslo peace process in the Middle East. She became the youngest vice president in the history of the World Bank at the age of 36. She returned to the UK in 2004 and rose to become the permanent secretary for the Department of International Development, where she was responsible for the UK's development assistance efforts around the world. She joined the IMF in 2011 as deputy managing director with responsibility for many of the crisis countries in the Eurozone and the Arab countries in transition. Then from 2014 to 2017, she was the deputy governor of the Bank of England. 
Last but not least, she was made a dame in the Queen's New Year's Honours List in 2015. And just last year, the UK government announced that she would be made a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. This year, Manoush has published a new book entitled What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract. And in this episode of Triumph Connects, I have the great honour to share with you my conversation with Manoush about the themes that she raises in this excellent new book. In spite of all of her accomplishments and her status as a truly global thought leader, I found her to be one of the most approachable, humane, genuine people, and I'm talking about people here, not just academics, but people that I have had the privilege of having a conversation with. As a contribution to the celebration surrounding Triumph's 20th year anniversary, I can think of no better guest and no better conversation. So my friends, without any further ado, I bring you Manoush Shafiq. Manoush Shafiq, welcome to Triumph Connects. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, Matthew. It's so great to have you. You know, um, we're going to talk today about your book, What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract. But just full disclosure, you are the director of the LSE. So technically, I think that you're probably my boss of some sort. So I, I hope... <laughs> I'm sure that won't affect you asking difficult questions because everyone at the LSE it likes to challenge. Yeah, well, I, I promise you that I will fulfill that obligation. So... Um, Look, I want to congratulate you on this book. It's just a brilliant book that's kind of absolutely overflowing with ideas. The ideas per page ratio on this book is probably higher than any book I've read in a really long time. And it's it's kind of no less than a complete manifesto of interrelated policy proposals that would reimagine what public policy would look like if we started with the question of what we owe each other. So kind of bravo. I mean, it's an amazing work. Oh, well, you're very, very kind. I mean, it was a it was a labor of love and hope. Well, really. and we need hope in this kind of twilight time sometimes, I think. Now, I think it's one of the things that I found incredibly moving, um, and it's a very short part of the book, and you, you don't have very much autobiography in the book. But I, I found at the beginning, you said that when you visited your mother's village in Egypt, because you're originally from Egypt, it inspired your desire to understand what you called the architecture of opportunity. And I love that phrase, this architecture of opportunity in society. And can you tell me a little bit about how that happened? I mean, I'd love to hear that fleshed out a little bit. Can you share? Sure. So um, so my mother's family comes from a village in Egypt where they've lived for millennia, literally. Uh, the name of the village is actually a pharaonic name. And we would visit all the time and I would see little girls who looked exactly like me. They looked exactly like mm. me. I could have been them, they could have been me. And the randomness of the opportunities that they had versus the ones that I had uh, just really struck me. They had very few choices about whether they'd go to school, who they'd marry, but what children, how many children they'd have. And most of them were doing physical labor for their entire lives. And, you know, John Rawls talked about the veil of ignorance that we would create a just society if we all were behind a veil of ignorance where we didn't know where we would land in that society at the top of it or at the bottom of it. And for me, it was a sort of veil of ignorance moment. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I could have been them, they could have been me. How is it right that 
society gives us such different sets of opportunities and how could one change that? That's such a great insight, you know, and I think it's shared by a lot of people, particularly, you know, you and I who have kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, risen to this kind of globalized elite, right? And I feel the same thing when I go home to my little town in Nebraska in the USA where I grew up and I look around and like you said, it strikes you so much that think of all the random elements, you know, and you see the people who have completely different lives than I do and you and I do in, in some ways. I probably share more with you in our lifestyles than I do with my people from where I grew up. And so I just think it's such a wonderful way to start the book because it puts into focus so much about this kind of, we are not necessarily the architects of all of our own opportunities. We are in this web of interdependency and randomness, really. And as you say, that forces us to have that veil of ignorance moment. So I just thought it was a great way to start the book. Yeah. Well, and I think also, you know, the your classmates from Nebraska could have had very different lives, but who knows what particular constraints they faced. Exactly bad luck, a family that wasn't particularly able to support them or a school that they went to that didn't push them and give them aspirations. So it's it's looking at all of those things, which is what I call the architecture of opportunity, so that everybody has a chance to thrive and be the best version of themselves and lead what they would consider a good life. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, I want to talk a little bit in that context about you know, this idea of the social contract. And you start the book with a kind of puzzle and, and your whole book is kind of a, a response to the kind of puzzle that you put forward. And, and you write, humans have never had it so good. And yet in so many parts of the world, citizens are disappointed. And this has revealed itself in politics, the media and public discourse. Rising levels of anger and anxiety are associated with people feeling more insecure and lacking the means or power to shape their future. And so I kind of see the book as largely an attempt to address this unhappiness. So where is this unhappiness coming from? Because if we look at all these material measures, it looks so great. So your response is to say, we need to look at this kind of idea of a social contract. And when I think of a contract, I think of parties to a contract and, and what they would be exchanging. So in your mind, at what level of abstraction are the parties? Is it the individual? Is it the individual to the state? Is the state, to, you know, who, who's party to the contract and, and what are the obligations on each side? Well, so the social contract operates at many levels. Uh, it operates at the level of the family and how we divide up work in our families, you know, as mundane of things as you know, who does the dishes and the cooking and who does the tidying up uh, to the level of the workplace and the kind of contract that an individual has with their employer and what the terms of that are to the relationship between citizens in the state and what people can expect from the state in terms of support and investment in their education or health or taking care of them in old age or when they're unemployed, and what the state expects back in terms of you paying your taxes and abiding by the laws. And so I think that's what's kind of interesting is to look at the social contract at all those levels mm. and how it is uh, no longer keeping up with the way our societies, with what our society needs. 
and or at least the expectations of people within that society, right? Because one could argue that expectations have changed through time as well. Absolutely, absolutely. People's expectations have changed and their circumstances have changed. Uh, you know, some of the biggest changes have been driven by the changing role of women who in the traditional social contract, women took care of the young and the old for free. But now with most women being educated and increasingly employed outside the home, their ability to take care of the young and the old for free is, is problematic yeah. and, and, and doesn't work anymore. Similarly, technology has radically changed work. Mm. Uh, we've seen that perhaps in the most extreme form during the pandemic, uh, but technology is changing where work happens, how it happens, what can be automated and what needs human activity. And so that too is changing the nature of our relationship with our employers. So, yeah, I completely agree. There's so many different variables that are changing at the same time and, and kind of the old social contract in some ways isn't fit for purpose in that sense. But for our listeners, I would love to put, if you indulge me for a second, I want to put your book into the context of the great tradition of the LSE in, in this area. So the LSE has been at the center of kind of the global discussion for a long time about the kind of a continuum about where the state should guarantee certain things and what should be left to individuals or families or charities or the market, et cetera. And at one end of the spectrum, um, you have a proposal created, kind of had its birth with Beatrice and Sidney Webb, who founded the LSE and then was kind of codified through Beveridge's report. And essentially it said, and this is a quote, the idea was that society should, quote, secure a national minimum of civilized life open to all alike in, of both sexes and all classes, by which we meant, and this is what's interesting, I think, for our purposes today, by which we meant a sufficient nourishment and training when young, a living wage when able-bodied, treatment when sick, and a modest but secure livelihood when disabled or aged. So that kind of invented along with, um, there was some policy implications that came along um, and Attlee who came along and, and kind of implemented these ideas, but that created kind of the, the seed of the kind of modern welfare state in gross terms. And then along comes Friedrich Hayek, who was another LSE prof at the time. He moved on to University of Chicago where he influenced Milton Friedman greatly, et cetera, et cetera. He argued that, look, if you have this kind of state intervention that Beveridge is saying, that inevitably kind of leads the path to totalitarianism, that this is bad news, that this is something that you should avoid completely, and that as much as possible it should be in the free markets, because otherwise you're on the road to serfdom, right? This is what he said. So Beveridge led to Clement Attlee, Hayek and Friedman kind of led to Thatcher and Reagan, where the state was seen as the problem rather than the solution. And then along comes kind of the third way, Tony Giddens, another director of the LSE, who kind of captured this approach characterized by the kind of politics of Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, Gerhard Schroeder, and others that said that we should try to harness the power of individualism, free markets to provide all these goals that Bevan said that they wanted. But this crashed in great disillusionment after the 2008 financial crisis, and we're kind of left with nothing, nothing to replace it. So we have these two poles, kind of Hayek and uh, Beveridge. So your book is an attempt, can we see it as an attempt at a, at a fourth way? Yeah. Or, or is it better to think of it as a kind of a, an update 
of the beverage report? So is it kind of beverage 2.0 or is it a fourth way? It's a good question. I sometimes call this book my sort of anti-populist manifesto. Oh, okay. Um, because uh, it could be a fourth way, it could be beverage 2.0, but I think what I'm really responding to is uh, the fact that all over the world, the discontent that we see in so many countries is being manifested in, in this rise of populist politics. And I think populism, populists have identified the right problems. The fact that there's inequality, people feel the system is unfair, people feel that it's rigged against them, uh, that they don't have equal access to opportunities and they feel angry and insecure. That The diagnosis is correct. It's just mm. that their solutions are wrong. The solutions around nationalism, xenophobia, being anti-immigrant uh, and protectionist are not going to solve those problems. And so I guess I was partly wanting to respond to, okay, well, what are the solutions to those very legitimate grievances that many people around the world feel? And I also try very hard in the book not to be put in a particular ideological box because I think many you know, societies have very different values. Um, it would be hard to imagine a national health service in the United States. Uh, it's sort of inconsistent with the prevailing American values. On the other hand, the American healthcare system is so inefficient and so expensive that I don't think any serious analyst would say that that's a good way to organize your healthcare system. Hmm. Continental Europe doesn't have a national health system. They, they have a different setup where you have insurance systems based on with employers contributing, but also a, a public backstop for those who need it. So I'm agnostic. I, your, Continental Europe has quite decent healthcare, as does the UK. I'm sort of agnostic between those two. I'm not agnostic to say that the US system is a good system, but I acknowledge that there are many ways to solve problems, sometimes using markets, sometimes using the state. Uh, but the point is that you have to have a, an effective mechanism for dealing with these issues. Uh, and some countries have failed to do that. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think that, you know, you're talking about healthcare. And again, if you will suffer my kind of simplistic mind for a little bit, because I want to give people an idea of the scope of the book. And what I'd like to do, if I can, is because you divide the book into chapters that are associated with kind of the stages of people's life. And in each one, you kind of erect the kind of pillars of this new social contract that we would see. And if it's okay with you, I'd love to have a little summary of each of the main points of each of these stages of life so we can get an idea of the project that you're proposing. And then, and then we can have a few questions about what that means in, in general. Is that, is that okay with you? Of course, of course. You start with children, which is a good place to start, of course. You know, And one of the arguments you make in that chapter that I, I found really compelling is that the current system, you said, results in a really inefficient allocation of talent in the economy. And I love this because your economist training comes shining through here so well, <laughs> you know, and I wonder if you could lead us through what that means, because that's a kind of a big statement, inefficient allocation of talent in the economy. What are its causes and consequences? Well, so the, the causes are the fact that we have all of these women now who are educated around the world. In fact, there are more women going to university today in the world than men. And they go to university or they finish school. Uh, they come out into the labor market. They earn the same as men in the beginning. But as soon as the first child is born, their incomes diverge. 
because women tend to then shift to part-time or flexible working in order to care for children. And society uh, offer, many countries offer maternity leave. But what does maternity leave say? Maternity leave says to a woman, you stay home and take care of your child. Some societies offer some paternity leave, which is better. But really what we need is parental leave to say to parents, we will enable both of you to choose what is the right mixes in terms of who takes care of their child. And even better, you can have high quality public childcare, which says to the parents, society will help you take care of your child so that both of you can continue to work. And that menu of support is much more appropriate to what modern families look like. The reason the current system uh, results in, in a misallocation of talent is that by having all of those talented women not being able to use their talents in the, in the, in the labor market, we're losing a great deal of economic productivity. If you look at the US, for example, over a 50 year period, you could explain about 20 to 40% of the productivity gains in the US economy, simply by virtue of the fact that women were entering the labor force and that employers, instead of only being able to choose their workers from the pool of white men, they could choose from a much bigger pool and they could match people much better to the jobs that suited them most. And so I would argue that if we could enable all of these talented women, as well as people who've been excluded from jobs in the past, minorities, etc., cetera, uh, we could get a much better allocation of talent in the labor market and our economies would be much more productive. Okay. So would you say that if such opportunities were available, if there was no constraint, so it didn't lead to a misallocation necessarily of the economic benefits of talent rationally and efficiently distributed in the society, do you think most women in that situation having children would choose to go ahead and enter fully into the formal workforce? Or do you think that there is something that by doing that, they might feel that there is a expectation that they should do this and therefore contribute some to that unhappiness that you might have been saying was the initial diagnosis? Yeah, I don't know. But what I would say is that I think society needs to let them choose. I also think that some men may choose to work part time and spend time looking after their children. But I think our current system results in forcing decisions in a certain direction where women in many societies are forced to withdraw from the labor force or become what are called secondary earners, where they're not the primary. Yeah, yeah. And what I observe in countries that give people better choices, say, look at the Nordic countries, you know, in the Nordic countries, most families have two earners uh, and they earn equally and they have access to good public childcare. And so when they were given that choice, more women stayed in the labor market and most more families had two earners. What I would say, and these are deeply personal choices, so I'm not specifying, but what I am saying is that the current set the way we've structured our social contract forces a particular solution which i believe results in inefficiency and i think let's see what people choose give yeah. them give them the option and see what they choose and again within that context i thought one of your interesting ideas in that chapter was this and it kind of runs throughout many of the chapters is the idea that 
we currently have all this kind of unpaid work that women on average, uh, for example, contribute two more hours of unpaid work than men do. And these are kind of these social functions that they're fulfilling. And that what we really need to do is somehow convert that into paid work. And whether it's provided at home by the parents or whether it's provided outside, economically, it doesn't really matter as long as it is being economically paid for in some way. Did I capture that idea? No, that's exactly right. And the amount of unpaid work uh, varies enormously. What's interesting is that the unpaid work that's about, you know, what we would call kind of uh, housekeeping, a lot of that has been automated in many countries. So, you know, dishwashers and hoovers and that kind of thing yeah. have reduced the amount of time. But looking after children takes a lot of time yeah. and that hasn't diminished over time. And you yeah, can't tell really me about automate it. that. <laughs> exactly. And so it's that bit of the unpaid work that's particularly uh, challenging and one that, uh, again, varies enormously. You know, in Norway, women do 20% more unpaid work than men. In Pakistan, they do 1,000% more unpaid wow. work than men. <laughs> so there are many ways, you know, there are many ways to, to, to allocate this. And I think... Uh, I think a fairer allocation would probably be, uh, would result in, in greater efficiency and productivity. Okay, great. So uh, let's move on from childhood to education. And in this case, I kind of see your argument as saying that, you know, not enough money is being spent in the right kinds of education. And particularly kind of early years education and then in lifelong learning. And you describe uh, this idea or policy about a lifelong entitlement payment for education. Can you tell us a little bit of how that would work? So I think all of us know that careers are going to be much longer. People are going to retire later because they're living longer and we need to think about how to equip them for that. And, you know, the old social contract was you got your education between the age of about six to about the age of 20, your early 20s. And then that was sufficient to carry you through a career, which would be about 30-ish years. Hmm. If your career is going to be 50 years, there's no way that what you learn in that early part of your life is going to be sufficient. People are going to need to retool and reskill many times over their lives. And our education system isn't really set up for that. And we have no way to finance that process of getting reskilled. And so I would argue that we should give every adult an allowance when they're, let's call it 18. Uh, let's, for the sake of argument, call it. 30,000 pounds or $50,000, that sort of scale. Um, and that that allowance could be used throughout your life to reskill and retool. A government would have to regulate authorized providers of this reskilling so that you wouldn't have kind of dodgy training centers who would just take your money and not give you any really valuable skills. But it would empower people to really think society has invested in me. They've given me this asset that I can use throughout my life to make sure that I'm employable throughout my life. Uh, and I think that would be a, a powerful investment in the next generation, but also a self-interested one because the future generations are the ones who are going to pay for the healthcare and pension needs of older generations. And so unless they are incredibly productive, we're all going to be worse off. I think the idea is so seductive. But I, I, when I when I read about it, I, I had it's when you said, you know, the state would have to protect us from kind of dodgy operators who would take our money for no things. And it led me to question something about it. And I'm really curious to hear what you say, because, for example, 
Would you be allowed to spend that money for religious education? Would you be allowed to spend the money to study 17th century French poetry? Could you see a time, and this is kind of a kind of Hayek concern, can't you see a time when the state would then start to say, okay, we're going to decide what's economically beneficial in this contract, what we'll pay for and not pay for? And all of these things that you think are important, that's not going to qualify. You want to do that? That's on you. But all this other stuff, we'll pay for. And so, as you said, society puts things that channel us one way or the other. Could it be a danger of not so subtle channel towards things that are maybe economically efficient, but don't give life very much meaning. Yeah, it's interesting. The only example of such an, an experiment was in uh, Singapore, where they currently give everyone in Singapore about $500 a year that they can spend on training and skills. And because the amount was relatively small, what they found is that most people acquired new hobbies rather than new skills. Right. And you could argue that that's life affirming, you know, people mm. should be, you know, if it increases their well being, uh, it is education isn't all about productivity. So I would not be, you know, as long as it was a really good course in French poetry, I would say fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, and, uh, you know, same on religion. Uh, I think it's a question more of the quality rather than the subject matter. Because I also do really believe in the end that it's about training your mind and sometimes training your mind is, you know, enables you to then do other things which that training is, has enabled you to do. So I'm, I would be less worried about the subject matter. I would be more worried about the quality. Um, and I think if you're in a society which, um, thinks that the economic benefit is important, you could make it a loan that has to be repaid as opposed to making it a grant. Okay. Uh, and again, I'm open to that idea. I think if you're gonna make it a loan, it should be a very low interest loan, but at least that would force people to think about, is the skill that I'm acquiring going to be something that will enable me to repay this? Like I said, I think the idea is amazing. What I started thinking about is implementation in different areas and, and like, what what counts as something that's a grant? What loan? It, these involve inherent uh, subjective judgments about the usefulness or the utility of the training, and once you get into that, then it's kind of essentially contested across different subgroups in a population. So you that that was a kind of idea that came up. But I think that the idea that you need an entitlement payment throughout your life, and this is a really clever kind of solution to the problem because it would spread out that across lifetime but then you get into the kind of this thorny issue about what parts are going to be okay for spending and what parts aren't going to be okay for spending and definitely it, will, it, would, it would change across societies but even kind of within nation states there's going to be a big contest about what's considered fair and unfair what's considered useful and not useful what the state's going to fund and what the state's not going to fund etc that's kind of a, a little warning light that went off in my mind. But I, I think the idea of a lifelong entitlement payment is it, it makes sense. How you implement it is, is a little bit more uh, problematic. And I think the, the challenge for any society is to say, okay, what do we owe each other? Do we yeah. owe each other the freedom to study whatever you want for, the, for your whole life? Or are we going to be more pragmatic and economically motivated and yeah. say, okay, society will invest in you as long as you 
develop these kinds of skills which are in short supply in our in our society that's a conversation that should be had in any society but i i guess my my main concern is that this is a huge failing in our current social yeah. contract that we need to address and different societies will make different choices about it sure but let's talk about it oh that's always good <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's move on to health because we've talked about this a little bit. So in your new social contract, this is really at the heart, you know, as you say, of many of it. And it's this kind of idea of a minimum primary care um, and public health for, for everybody. And as you said, you're kind of agnostic about how it's achieved, except kind of a, a grossly inefficient uh, systems, so let's say like the U.S., but that the idea is that if we looked around at each other in this uh, maybe a Rawlsian veil of ignorance, the minimum we can all agree that we should have a, a kind of basic minimum primary care and public health for everybody. And there's different ways to fund that and you make sure it's efficient. But I think in many ways, that's a kind of most straightforward chapter. I don't, that seems to me the least controversial of, of, of many of the policies that you put forward. Yeah, I mean, the one, uh, I think there are two themes in that chapter, which um, are worth focusing on. One is I think, some countries have a very explicit social contract as to where what society will invest in in other people's health and they use uh, something called a quality a quality adjusted life year yeah which says how much will the public health system pay for an additional year of good health hmm. and some countries are very explicit about that in the uk it's thirty thousand pounds so if a health intervention be it a medical device or medicine or a procedure costs 30,000 pounds and will deliver an additional year of good health, the National Health Service will pay for it. Yeah. Uh, other countries have an explicit, some have don't have an explicit number, but they have a sort of implicit or a range of things or a list of procedures that are covered under public health and others that you have to do privately. Those That choice is the social contract in health. So in most countries, for example, uh, cosmetic surgery is not included in public health programs hmm. uh, or sometimes dentistry is not included for various reasons. So I think that having an explicit number which rises with per capita income is a really efficient way to do it because then you're making it very clear what society is willing to spend. Every country can set a threshold depending on how wealthy that country is. And as you get richer, you can afford to invest more in health. So that's one theme. I think the second really important theme is that so much of the gains in healthcare these days depend on human behavior and not on medical intervention. And things like most of the diseases of modernity are caused by lack of exercise, obesity, smoking, alcohol, all those things. And that we need to use much more kind of nudges, taxes, and other ways to get people to look after their health better. Because no matter how much we spend on public health, if those things are not addressed, people will not have healthy lives. Uh, and I guess the final thing I'd say on the health side is that we also know that even with the best public health system, if people's social and economic conditions are poor, their health is vulnerable. And you know, we saw that in the pandemic. Mm. Why did black and ethnic minority groups have worse outcomes from COVID? Because the economic and social conditions in which they lived uh, made them much more vulnerable. And so in many ways, the whole social contract 
uh, enables better health. And the idea of, of making those quality money trade-offs explicit gives it a degree of transparency. Now, of course, the demand is always going to outstrip the supply of funds to do these things. And, and once it goes into at least a democratic political structure, there's all kinds of room for grandstanding. And as we saw with so-called death panels in the U.S. and et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. But, but there is, um, as an idea, I, I completely agree. We need to think about how, how we're going to do this um, and, and to make it as explicit and transparent as possible. Um, having some sort of discussion, as you said, a talk about how much do we want to spend for this? How much can we afford and how much should we afford and what sacrifices are we going to make in a kind of zero-sum game to in order to, to fund those? Those are questions we need to have the kind of courage to address. Absolutely. And if you don't have an explicit and transparent system like Qualys, you end up having a system where the healthcare you get depends on how rich you are, which is yep. the US model, or as you see in many developing countries, incredibly uneven and unequal access. So people who happen to live in cities get better access than people who are in rural areas. Yeah. Uh, misallocation in favoring things like hospitals rather than primary care and so on. And so qualities are very powerful mm. for getting a fairer and more efficient allocation of resources in the health sector. Okay, so we have a, a better childhood. We have more equal uh, distribution of, of kind of the household uh, private family uh, provision across different uh, genders and across the state, et cetera, et cetera. We have better education. We're all more healthy and we go off to work now. And um, here, as you alluded to earlier in our discussion, you talked about the changing nature of technology and work, et cetera. And you talked about how Regardless of the type of contract between you and your employer, you need benefits for everybody equally proportioned to the number of hours that you work and that these should be portable across different jobs and that business should help invest in this lifelong investment in skills training and that this is meant to try to rebalance this flexibility and security. So in this chapter, you talk about this kind of tension in some ways between flexibility and security. And can you just flex that out, what you mean by the flexibility and security in this sense? Yeah. So I think modern labor markets, partly because of technology and the emergence of platforms and people being able to work for multiple employers uh, at the same time and the rise of flexible working has meant that employers no longer pay benefits to a significant part of the workforce. And I think that's a big source of insecurity in people's lives. Many people now have jobs where they don't know what their income is going to be from week to week, and therefore can't plan for their financial lives, can't buy a home, can't get a credit card, can't even get a mobile phone contract. <laughs> yeah. um, and that flexibility has been hugely beneficial to firms and shareholders. It's also been quite beneficial to consumers, because if you think about many of the services that we buy now, hmm. they are much cheaper because uh, many of the goods and services are produced by workers under these kind of flexible contracts. But it's been really tough on workers. And I think the pendulum has shifted too far in the direction of flexibility. Uh, and I think it needs to shift back to be able to provide a minimum level of security to all workers so that they have unemployment benefits, sickness benefits, and a minimum pension associated with their employment. 
I think, for example, it's very interesting that last month, the UK Supreme Court ruled that Uber drivers are employees. They are not contractors and they deserve sickness benefits. One of the things we saw during the pandemic was that many workers who were on these flexible terms couldn't afford to take sick leave when they got COVID yeah. uh, because they would earn no income. Uh, so I think these are, these are symptomatic of this problem that flexibility has gone too far. Now, I'm an economist. I believe in flexible labor markets. So what I would like to see is retaining the benefits of flexibility, making it easy for firms to hire and fire depending on demand or shifts in technology, but making sure those workers have a safety net that includes generous unemployment insurance and investment in reskilling and enabling them to find new jobs. Mm. When you get, the Nordic countries are a really good example. They have really high labor turnover. In fact, countries like Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland have the highest labor turnover in Europe. People get hired and fired all the time. And it's not a big deal because when they lose their job, they get unemployment insurance that is close to their previous wage. Uh, and then they're very quickly reskilled and retrained and back in work. So they have some of the highest employment rates in the world. So I think that model gets a much better balance between giving flexibility for employers, but providing workers with a minimum level of security and confidence that society will invest in them to keep them employed. I agree. I, I kind of radically agree with you in the, on these points, but I also think that it's a great example of the interdependence between these different pillars of the social contract, because if we think about how we organize, for example, healthcare has a big influence on then how we organize work or the fluidity of the labor market. So if I'm sitting in the US and I know that if I leave my job, I'm going to lose my healthcare. So that healthcare is provided through me through work. Of course, I'm going to be much less likely to leave my work. You're going to get a lot of stickiness in the labor market because you may not get the same benefits outside of that. So in a sense, providing those goods through employers, give those employers a much more powerful position vis-a-vis -vis the worker than if the, those basic provision is provided outside of employment. And then you, of course, you have what you see, as you said, in the Scandinavian countries, lots more labor uh, fluidity because people know that whatever bundle of benefits they receive as a minimum level of life support, whatever it is, is not going to be threatened by changing jobs. Yeah. Well, I, I think that one needs to fundamentally rethink the deal, the balance of responsibilities between employers and workers. So if I were to just sketch out what such a, a rearrangement of rights and obligations would look like, I think in many countries we're seeing, again, the pendulum shift toward to more reasonable corporate tax rates, which have, have fallen in every country in the world because of tax competition. And I think the US is now pushing for a global minimum corporate tax, mm. uh, which will put a floor on tax competition, which I think is a good thing. And I think we should move toward mandating minimum benefits for all workers, regardless of the nature of their employment contract. And I think going forward, we're probably going to see a carbon tax, uh, which will obviously affect business. Hmm. But all of those things would add cost to business. But there are some things that I would take away from employers in terms of their cost burden. For example, 
minimum unemployment insurance and pensions probably should be paid through general taxation rather than from payroll taxes. The costs of maternity leave, that really should be borne by employers. It should be borne by society because that would also create a more level playing field between men and women in the workplace. I would also subsidize firms that invest in skilling their workers more than is in their interest. Because the problem today is that because workers turn over more often and they are in more flexible terms, they're less attached to their employers and their employers are less attached to them and less likely to invest in as much as they should in them. So a human capital tax credit, I think would be something that would be worth considering. I think things like uh, unemployment benefits and reskilling support and a lifetime educational endowment should be paid by society rather than by employers. And so some things would, some things I would add to the costs for employers, but other things I would take away. What I'm really interested in is leveling the playing field between how much we tax capital, which tends to be taxed very little, and how much we tax labor, which we tend to tax very highly. And what, I'm, what I'd like to do is change the incentive structure that firms face so that they have an interest in retraining workers more, using less carbon, and creating a level playing field between men and women in the workplace, and have an incentive to create more jobs. I think that rebalancing mm. would result in a radically different work social contract but one which, uh, which would actually result in greater productivity, more equal outcomes, and more efficiency in the end. Yeah. Again, just for anyone listening to that last uh, statement that you made, the ideas per word are very high ratio. I mean, it's... They're, they're, <laughs> Sorry, that was a bit dense, wasn't it? No, it was no. But there's restructured. A, oh, there's such, there's, there's such a lot there to unpick, and, and we, we could go on for hours and hours, but I, I think that... Again, what you demonstrate is such a sophistication on how these things all tie together that you can't pick one out and say, let's talk about the benefits and, and the cost of this particular, let's say, a wealth tax, taxing wealth rather than taxing labor. So that has implication in itself, but you can't talk about it independent of the other structures around it which make up that social contract. And if your book does nothing else, it leads us to think about these things within those larger contexts. Yeah. And, you know, another just uh, since you mentioned wealth taxes, another frequent panacea that people talk about is universal basic income, which I'm not so keen on because I think, you know, there's some very good economic reasons why universal basic income is not the answer. Uh, for one thing, you have to, well, I should just say, I have worked in many developing countries where we organized conditional cash transfers to very poor households where you set deliver cash to very poor households and it has hugely positive benefits. That's in countries where most people are poor and targeting is not really a major issue. Hmm. But in, in wealthier countries where you can target, why would you raise the tax rate hugely in order to then transfer income to people who don't necessarily need it? So it's, it's not a very efficient outcome. But at a more fundamental level, I think for me, Able-bodied adults are expected to contribute to society in most it, it, throughout human history, um, and I think work is the most important way that we contribute to society. 
And I think universal basic income sort of gives up on people and says, you have nothing to contribute. And that's why I think it's, it's actually not a good idea and not a solution. I think the kinds of things that I've described in terms of changing the, the social contract around work would enable people to continue to contribute, but also be supported uh, when they can't contribute. Let me just pick one of the things that you said. I'm going to try to gently kind of push back a little bit just to try to get our discussion going a little bit. You said the most important thing that most people do to contribute to the society is work. And again, I, I think it's certainly an important thing that people do. But do you think that I'm, th I'm thinking about how much of that view of work is structured by the experience that you and I have of meaningful work? that we sit around and we think and we do things that we enjoy. And I don't know about you, I'm, I, I'm guessing you get great enjoyment and fulfillment and meaning from the work that you do. And mm -hmm. I, I'm the same way, mm -hmm. but I don't know if I'd feel the same way if I was checking people's price at the grocery stand or taking people's money in a petrol station. And I, I think that in some ways, when we talk about the dignity of work and the meaningful of work, usually people are talking about that are people who have dignified and meaningful work. Mm. And I kind of would push back a little bit. If I think of, of all the things that I contribute to society, which I try to do, of course, we all try to do. I'm not sure if my work would be at the top or my trying to be a good father would be at the top or trying to be a good member of my community and trying to help people that I come into contact with. In some ways, those seem to me much more important contributions to my society, to my community, than me going to work. And so throughout the book, there, there is a kind of concentration. And of course, you're an economist. Of course, this is what you're going to concentrate on is kind of the economic inputs I put into the culture. But it seems to me that you could make the argument or one could make the argument that those lack of an opportunity to contribute to the formal economy in an efficient way isn't what's driving people's unhappiness. Yeah, no, I, I take that point. And I think uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is the importance of us using things like well-being as a measure of, of social progress. Yeah. And yeah. Work is a very small part of well-being. Um, in fact, when you look at the research, much of which has been done at the LSE on what drives people's well-being, the most important is physical and mental health. Yeah, yeah. Second is the quality of my relationships with my family, with my community, the things you just highlighted, Matt. And the third is, do I have meaningful work? And those are the kinds of things that really determine whether people feel they have a good life or not. I guess my only point about, uh, about work is that I think taking away work which is what people who advocate universal basic income want to do, yeah. actually takes away one important part of people's well-being. Hmm. And, and I take your point that, you know, there's certainly many jobs that are not very gratifying. But, uh, you know, in the very long run, in the very long run, I actually derive hope from the fact that people who, who advocate universal basic income are often reacting to concerns about automation replacing work. But the things that automation will replace are the really tedious and repetitive bits of work. And over time, those things will be automated. And what will remain are the bits of work that require human creativity, human interaction, compassion, empathy. Um, 
And I'd like to think that automation will actually make work more gratifying over time as we leave the boring bits to the robots. Yeah, well, that's the great hope. I guess the question will be, will there be enough work involving that creativity and, and life of the mind, et cetera, to, to fill in for all the jobs that are lost that are, that are repetitive and not, not very interesting? And of course, I think employment um, is a big part of that, and I'm not meaning to suggest not. And I, th I think that probably, at least from my point of view, it's not necessarily the inherent meaningfulness of the job, but it's that it gives people a sense of agency, mm -hmm. that they're doing something. And in response for what they're doing, they're getting something back. So it goes back to your idea of a social contract. If, if everything is I'm receiving from something and I, I'm not giving anything back, then in a sense, you lose agency. You become buffeted by whoever sets that minimal standard, et cetera, et cetera. And it's that agency part that probably contributes, I would guess, and I'm not a specialist in this field, but I would guess that that's a big part of what gives people the meaning through their job. Absolutely. And reciprocity sort of feeds through the entire social contract. That is the point. We owe each other things. And yeah. You know, we we give and we get, and that's uh, that's uh, that's a sort of central theme of all of our society. Yeah, and it reinforces that through formal work. Now, you touch on the end about our obligations to future generations, and this is a topic that's really close to my heart because I, I've thought uh, I think a lot about this, and you approach it as a, a kind of one of the things you say we we use this discounting. A discounting factor for future generations. Essentially, as I understand it, we say, well, we're doing some harm right now. We're taking some some value out of nature or whatever it might be, but um, and that might have some value in the future for all the future generations. But if we say it has the same value for all the future generations and we assume lots of future, future generations, then we shouldn't do anything because us taking you know a, a little bit out would mean that if you if you multiply that through all of the future generations no matter what the discount rate you should probably just not do anything um in this chapter you talk about social capital productive capital and natural capital and there's something a bit linear about that idea of natural capital because it's not it seems to me not a bank that we can keep taking deposits out of and then have a kind of steady decline and we can decide to supplement later. There's these big cliffs that if you take too much out, then all the rest of the capital that you talk about goes away. And one of the, the ideas that you talk about that, that would help this is this carbon tax. Now, every economist that I've ever read that's thought seriously about this puts forward the carbon tax much better than uh, a cap and trade, much better than uh, getting people to go out and plant trees, much better than you know getting people to please recycle, that kind of thing. Carbon tax seems to be this great solution. Can you tell us why so many economists love this tax? Yeah, so the reason economists love carbon taxes is because it gets into the nooks and crannies of the economy and it changes incentives for everything. If you had a carbon tax, fruits and vegetables which travel halfway around the world just automatically become more expensive and you would probably, you know, eat fruits and veg that come more locally. Uh, you know, public transport becomes even cheaper than driving your own car or suddenly it becomes really advantageous for uh, a company or a household to implement energy efficiency measures and upgrade their boiler, for example. There's an automaticity in that it gets into every decision and 
changes all the incentives in the economy to use less carbon. And all the other solutions that you described, from planting trees to cap and trade to voluntary targets, all those things are partial. Uh, so that's one big reason economists love carbon taxes. The other thing about carbon taxes is it enables you to reduce carbon in the most efficient manner possible because the mm. market mechanism makes you reduce carbon in the way that's most cost effective. So there are lots of debates among environmental economists about the trade-offs between different ways of reducing carbon and which ones are cheaper. If you have a carbon tax, the market sorts it out for you and figures out, yeah. you know, using the price mechanism, which way is most efficient. And so it is an incredibly attractive tool. Now, the reason there are two big complaints about carbon taxes. One is that it's unequal, that people from an income distribution point of view, it hits poor people more than rich people, because in some contexts, poor people consume more carbon as a proportion of their income. Uh, so, for example, in France, we saw that with the Gilets jaunes, when uh, rural people were very opposed to taxes on diesel because they were much more reliant on their cars for transport than people living in cities. But that is fixable because you can charge a carbon tax and then reimburse the amount that you've collected either equally to everyone or you could even reimburse it more to those who have lower incomes. Uh, and so, for example, Canada has done that, where they mm. tax carbon, but then they give the money back to people through the tax system. Uh, so you can deal with the inequality issues. The second complaint about carbon taxes is that it's not fair because of international trade. And that if other countries don't have carbon taxes, your own industries will suffer unfairly because they'll have to compete with those industries that countries that don't have carbon taxes and you might just import the carbon so if china or india are using coal and you import products which are fueled by coal you haven't helped global warming at all you're just transferring the problem abroad but again that is solvable and the european union is looking at for example a carbon border tax so if you import products from a country that doesn't have carbon taxation you would add a tax onto that to level the playing field with your own domestic carbon tax. It's a little bit complicated, but it's not an insurmountable problem. Yeah, you'd have to figure out how uh, some agreed measure of what the amount of carbon would be that you were doing this. Uh, just out of curiosity, have you heard of this idea of a carbon coin? No. Tell me about it. Uh, okay. So um, on one side, you have a carbon tax, which is a kind of um, classic, you know, you tax certain activities and the market will come up with creative ways to avoid that tax, right? And, and in that sense, you're, you're taxing carbon and reducing its input. Carbon coin is this idea that central banks could gather together and issue essentially a new currency called a carbon coin. And let's say that you would get one carbon coin for every ton of carbon that you eliminated from the atmosphere, okay? And essentially, it would be pegged to a basket of currencies, this carbon coin. You could convert it to the currency. Of course, this is creation of money through the central banks, but this is kind of called uh, environmental quantitative easing. Okay. But the money, the money would be created through the creation of this new currency that you would then provide a positive incentive for people to eliminate carbon rather than a negative incentive for them not to produce it. And the idea is that these two things, if they were implemented together, 
would multiply each other's effect. It's just a new idea. I don't know if you've heard of it. I, it's probably unfair to ask you about it, but I just, uh, that, that, it's, it, it, there's all kinds of interesting economic ideas coming up on this topic, I guess I should say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's inter- I mean, I presume the idea would be that this carbon coin would have currency. You could buy goods and services with it. So well, or you could convert at a fixed money. rate to whatever currency you wanted. Right, right. So, um, I mean, the only thing I'd say is that it, um, so many of these things, it would be just better to use fiscal policy. Yeah, and, yeah. For example, have... Uh, for example, subsidies to green technologies to bring them forward and accelerate the development of green technologies, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that you could you could create incentives through fiscal policy that would not confuse monetary policy and fiscal policy so much and have the central bank starting to do things that are that that look like fiscal policy. Having said that, I should say that it's we're at a very interesting time in central banking because central mm. banks are doing all sorts of interesting things to try and help the transition to net zero. So for example, climate stress testing of banks, forcing disclosure on financial institutions of the carbon risks that they have in their portfolios. Um, thinking about whether carbon should feature in quantitative easing. I have, I have some caution on that, but but I think it is very interesting that central banks are looking within their remit of monetary and financial stability. Yeah, how should they be thinking about climate risks, and how can they contribute to government policy on that? Of course, because within that remit of of stability, you have to then start to consider environmental issues as well. And in a sense, central banks have massive amounts of power that they're now starting to use within that mandate that they have. And, and that leads me to kind of a summary question, a couple summary questions, and then we'll get you out of here. But the idea here is that, and, and so unfair of me to ask you this question, because I started this discussion by saying I was so amazed by how much you covered. And now I'm going to start with a question by, but why didn't you cover this? <laughs> so uh, I, I was kind of surprised, though, by the absence of almost any discussion on politics and power and religion in your book. Um, and you do have a brief discussion at the end about the political considerations and the challenges, but you often talk about countries as kind of unified actors where the nation state, for much of your book, is kind of the unit of analysis. You say, well, the U.S. does this or Denmark does that. But isn't part of the problem that states are not unified and mm-hmm. that, that the citizens have these kind of profound disagreements about what the role of the state should be? So at the end of the book, you quote Beveridge, and Beveridge says, Freedom from want cannot be forced on a democracy or given to a democracy. It must be won by them. Winning, it needs courage and faith and a sense of national unity. Courage to face the facts and difficulties and overcome them. Faith in our future and the ideas of fair play and freedom for which century after century our forefathers have prepared to die. And finally, a sense of national unity overriding the interest of any class or section. And for now, let's let's leave aside the courage and faith in the future bit. And I just <laughs> want to talk about the national unity part. Mm-hmm. Um, how can you consider a, a social contract without dealing with this problem? And let me try to explain. We said we started the diagnosis that people are unhappy. And you conclude that they're unhappy because they no longer have a kind of social and family structure that in the past, even poorly and inadequately provided a lot of the things for the social contract, aren't kind of currently incorporated into the formal economy as we have it. 
and it's replaced these functions, but completely inadequately, and a disproportion of the burdens have fallen to women and created this kind of insecurity, inefficiencies, all the things that your your uh, new social contract is meant to to address. And, and I agree, I want, I want to say ahead of time, I agree with your diagnosis and almost all of your solutions. But if I'm a conservative with a small c, mm. for a moment, might they argue something like this? People are unhappy because of the modern economy, because it's proven for most of them to be a dead end for happiness. And that hap unhappiness and disconnections, these the people, what they feel, are a result because they lack the kind of thick and rich interconnections that they used to have with their families and communities that were based on these older social contracts. And that powerlessness and alienation from, from modernity and the kind of impersonal state has led to a loss of meaningfulness in life that relied on family connections, community connections, religious beliefs, etc. And if you take those away and you replace them with material consumerism and you kind of double down on making people's material consumer lives better, won't you just fuel this populist backlash? Mm. So I guess I'd say two things. On the politics, you know, I'm not a political scientist, but I do look a little bit at the literature on this. And it is you know, there are some patterns around which kinds of politics produce better social contracts. You know, if you if authoritarian governments usually don't deliver very good social contracts. Yeah. <laughs> and, and winner takes all political systems, presidential systems also don't tend to produce very generous social contracts because politicians are incentivized to go for the majority interests and yeah. then forget about the rest. Proportional representation systems tend to be the most generous because you need coalitions and you have to look out for the interests of many different groups. Uh, so more, and just generally speaking, more inclusive political systems tend to have better social contracts uh, and do wet better on things like measures of happiness and subjective well-being. So it's not a comprehensive view of the politics, but, uh, but I think there are some patterns we can see there. Um, but on your other point around kind of civil society and community, I do think it's something that economists have neglected. Um, the uh, economist Raghu Rajan, who uh, has, has written a book called The Third Pillar, and he talks about, you know, economists have focused on markets and individuals and forgotten the role of the third pillar, which is the community. Right. And we kind of underestimated the importance of that. And of course, there's a very rich political science literature which looks at what makes good institutions uh, and why do some countries have effective institutions? Uh, it all started with kind of Putnam looking at Italy and why yeah. is it that Northern Italy has really good institutions and Southern Italy doesn't? And, you know, he ultimately connects this to the importance of civil society and, That's right. yeah. and the kind of networks that people have and the fact that communities are used to coming together and solving these problems. And there's definitely uh, a need for more of that. And there are some interesting models of, for example, welfare reform that are more based on community-based welfare, where you bring communities together to look after each other. And, you know, I, I, there, there's probably something missing there uh, in the book to talk a bit more about those kinds of solutions. The challenge I find with talking about them is that uh, 
they don't lend themselves to public policy levers. Yeah. Um, and so for someone like me who spent a huge amount of time in public policy, you know, you don't know what to do uh, to enable that to happen. There's sort of, there's no magic sauce that you can sprinkle over a community and create those connections. And they rely really heavily on community activists, local institutions coming together, often brought together by a crisis or a challenge, which forces people to try and come together to find solutions. Mm. And so it is a challenge for policymakers to figure out how to enable that. And even the work that, that's been done on social capital by people like Putnam and others, when asked, how do you make that happen? How do you create those webs of social networks in Northern Italy that enable democracy to flourish much more effectively than in the South? You know, the answer is it takes hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, you're right, you're, you're, you're oh, right there. Sort of, I get stuck at that point as a policymaker. And I yeah. think that for me is a challenge. Well, I think that, What's interesting is I think that there are, there's a huge scope there for really clever public policy because in effect, a lot of what you propose in the book provides those nudges and shapes. And one of the things that's driving those proposals that you have is economic efficiency and a life with dignity defined in a certain way. And I think that if we included a kind of maybe it's the third pillar, I don't know, but have a deeper discussion about what meaningfulness means, because you rightly point out that it's this kind of well-being that people seem to be most concerned about, not necessarily how much money and how much stuff they can have ab above a kind of certain minimal level. Obviously, yeah. you know, you don't sit around contemplate the meaning of life when your stomach, when your stomach is empty. That's that's, but but above a certain level, we no longer we no longer get any more traction on kind of well being and happiness if we just provide more stuff. So I think that that's a that's an interesting place to go. Now, one last question on the on the book, and and then I'll, I'm going to ask you a, a recommendation. But one. One last thing is, and this is again unfair because the, the book is so large in scope, I'm going to ask you, why didn't you go even further in scope? And, and this is the question here about the nation state as a unit of analysis. So you talk about what we owe each other, and largely you talk about what we owe each other in our own nations. Um, and sometimes I think that that is a kind of a morally difficult place to be. And I'm just going to push a little bit because I'd love to hear your response to this. Let's take health when you're talking about health. And we talk, we already talked about qualities, right? These quality adjusted years of life. Let's say that I'm in a society where I can spend 100,000 units of currency. I don't know, we'll say pounds, 100,000 pounds, and it'll give a person one extra quality life. Mm. Okay. And I could spend that same 100,000 and I could get a thousand years of extra quality life in a different nation state. Right. Does it make sense for me as what we owe each other to say, okay, I'm going to give a hundred thousand to get this one year. Don't we owe each other outside of these kind of random national boundaries? Yeah. Well, a really good example is vaccines. Does yeah, it make exactly. sense to be vaccinating 30 year olds in rich countries when you know, even from a self-interested point of view, it might make more sense to vaccinate people in poor countries. Um, it's a really uh, 
important issue. And in some ways that probably needs to be my next book is what do we owe each of other people in other countries, particularly because I spent 20 years of my life in the international system. No, absolutely. Uh, as an international public servant working on kind of global public goods and international development. And, you know, I tend to think of it as concentric circles. Most people feel they owe the most to the people closest to them to their own yeah. families. Yeah. Uh, and then as you go out to the next level, to your community, and then to your nation state, and then to people in other countries in the sort of outermost circle. But I do think we're at a moment where we have to define what those obligations are to the outermost circle, because yeah. uh, confidence in in the international system has, has, very has diminished enormously. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing I'd say about international obligations is that people uh you know part of the backlash against globalization is that people feel that they haven't gotten benefits from it and so having a good social contract at home enables people i think to have more open societies and economies uh so that was part of the reason i wanted to focus on the national challenges because i think unless people feel that the system is working for them yeah uh, they will tend to revert to more nationalist and protectionist. Yeah. And that's status. a road we don't want to go down. Exactly. I would add two more circles to your, so if you need a third or fourth book, so one would be what we owe to other generations, and then that implies maybe what we owe to entities that are not human, right? Fellow life forms. Yes. And essentially, history has been a, a kind of history of how large we make that circle as we go. Anyway. It has been an absolute pleasure. I have one more final question for you. It's not a difficult one, I hope. Um, we've been through a year of kind of isolation and a lot of us have taken kind of solace from books and TV shows and movies, both fiction and nonfiction. We always end up each podcast asking our guests one book or TV show, fiction, movie, whatever it is, what would you recommend for people to bring a little light into our world? Oh, it's a tough question. You know, in a funny way, writing this book was my solace and what kept me sane during lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I would recommend writing a book, write your own book. Oh, um, there you go. That's <laughs> fantastic. It, you know, it forces you to bring your thoughts together in a way. And I also felt I could do a service by, you know, if you, most people won't read all the end notes and footnotes, but you know, I, it, I, I thought I could do a service by reading all this stuff on behalf of other people and kind of synthesizing and summarizing it. Um, I think the only other thing I'd say is I think like a lot of people, I found being out in nature very comforting during oh. this period. It was a way to maintain sanity and, uh, and find some peace in this very challenging year. Completely agree. Well, Manush, it's been absolutely a pleasure. Uh, your wisdom and intelligence shines through in both the book and in the personal conversation. I really appreciate your time. Oh, well, thank you, Matt. And thank you for reading the book so carefully and, uh, and understanding the arguments and challenging me to go further. You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.